Matthew chapter 25 is where we will be, and I will read verses 31 through 46 in just a minute. Um, But as we come here, we're reaching the end. In fact, these verses mark the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. And so this discourse has run from chapter 25 uh, all the way, or from 24 all the way through chapter 25. And, and now in Matthew's gospel, we, we kind of reach a point where his, his official teaching is done. And so really all that's left after we conclude today's passage is the suffering, the arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so after today's sermon, we will, this is according to plan, Lord willing, we will only have seven sermons left in the Gospel of Matthew, which has been the longest sermon series that that I've done since I've been here. So it'll be two years, uh, 85 sermons that we have as a church, week in and week out, worked through the Gospel of Matthew. So Lord willing, we will finish next month. And it started in December of 2021, if you remember, it was our Christmas series when we started uh, the beginning of uh, December with the genealogies and the, the promise of the coming Messiah. But uh, we're not there yet. The, as I said, our passage this morning will conclude the Olivet Discourse, and this discourse has, has, has made this progress, this process, and last week we saw where Jesus prepared his disciples for the in-between time, when he was going to leave and he's going to come back, and his whole point was, here's how you're ready don't be surprised. You, you know I'm coming back, so be ready. And this week he concludes and climaxes with the return, with what's going to happen at his return. And in both cases, in his in-between, in his, in his return, the, the way that Christians act between the times and at his return is by trusting in Christ. That's how you're ready. You don't want to be caught off guard. You are holding fast to Christ in the intermediate time. When he returns, you're trusting in him. And that's that's how you are prepared for the judgment that's going to take place, which is the the focus of our passage. The, The main point, what we'll see this morning, the main point is how you treat the king's people is a reflection of your relationship to the king. How you treat the king's people is a reflection of your relationship to the king. And so the point of today's passage is that the final judgment when, when Christ returns and whether you enter eternal life or eternal punishment is entirely dependent upon your relationship to the king. How are you going to relate to the king? That's the determining factor. However, your relationship to the king is evidenced by the way that you treat the king's people. That, that's the point of today's passage, the focus. So that the way that you treat the king's people doesn't determine whether you have a right relationship with the king. Notice that the way you treat the king's people doesn't determine whether you have a right relationship with the king, but the way you treat other people, God's people, is evidence of your relationship with the king. It's similar, if you'll bear with this analogy, to the relationship between a fruit tree and its fruit. The identity of the fruit tree, it's already established before the first piece of fruit is produced. The the fruit is evidence of an already existing reality. And in our passage, the love of other Christians is the fruit of an already existing reality, namely being in a right relationship with the king. So your relationship with other people evidences your relationship with the king. We'll see that as we work through these verses, but at the outset, it's just important to get the relationship right because some people will look at this passage 
and think that, that showing mercy or showing a little bit of compassion is the means of establishing a right relationship with the king. And that misses the point, as we'll see. The relationship is important because we don't want to come away from this passage thinking, if we just go out to this front yard and, and we see some of these trees out here, if we just take some apples and start, or, or oranges and start stapling them to an oak tree, that doesn't make it an apple tree. The fruit doesn't change the identity of what is producing the fruit. That's not how it works. And so in our passage, how you treat the king's people is a reflection of, of who you are in your relationship with the king. So you, we don't want to walk away and say, well, we just got to love people more and that'll make me okay with the king. No, no, no. You're okay with the king or you're not. And how you treat others is evidence of that relationship. Your relationship with Christ is the determining factor, as we'll see, of whether you enter eternal life or enter eternal punishment. So it's a serious topic to consider. So I'm going to read, if you have the Bible, if you're using the Bible in the pew back, it's page 831. We'll be in Matthew chapter 25. The, the big letters or big numbers on those pages are the chapters. And then the little verses are the, the, or the little numbers are the verses. And so Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to read verses 36 through 41. And it is on page 831. But you can follow along as I read. These are the words of the king. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, the sheep, will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray before we look at, at these verses together. Father, we thank you that the words that we find here, that the one speaking these words is the one who would, in not too many days from this teaching, hang on a cross, abandoned by all his disciples, bearing the weight of our sin, the record of debt that stood against us will be, would be nailed to him, thus making payment for our sins. 
And so we thank you that Jesus laid down his life for us, that we might be forgiven and might be with him forever and might enjoy eternal life. And so even as we read these verses and study them, Lord, would we not lose focus of the king who laid down his life for us, who has shown us love and compassion. And so would our love for him and our faith in him increase so that we might then love his people also. Help us, Spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, there, there's really, there's three sections here, three points that we're gonna work through in these verses. And so we're gonna see first point, the great separation there in verses 31 through 33. And then we'll see the, the kind of the, after the separation, we see first the reward of the sheep, which is verses 34 through 40, and then the punishment of the goats, verses 41 through 46. So we have this great separation, and then he deals with the sheep, and he deals with the goats. One he's rewarding, one he's punishing. And so that's how we'll work through these together. And so we'll start there with the great separation, but let me just, as we, as we begin, there are kind of two, two issues that I just wanna tell you where I fall on these at the outset, and then we'll work through, because I think getting these out at the beginning will then make it easier for us to, to work through kind of these verses together. So the, the two most significant decisions in, in this passage, the first one is not very difficult, but I just wanna let you know, they're in verse 32, you see where the, all nations, that, that, that term all the nations is mentioned. Now, the, the identity of all the nations is a significant decision. Now, now a popular view that, that maybe some of you grew up believing, maybe some of you still do, but there's a, a popular view which, which falls in line with a, a dispensational understanding of scripture which, which ties the, the seven-year tribulation, which they would say Jesus is teaching here, and there would be a rapture of the church, and then there would be a seven-year tribulation, and then this would be the judgment of the nations at the end of the rapture, or at the end of the seven years of tribulation. This judgment would be Jesus judging all the nations with, based on how they treated the Jews in the seven-year tribulation. Now, people that hold that view, uh, they don't hold that view because they don't believe the Bible or because they're dumb. I just, if you've been with us through this, this Olivet Discourse, I don't think that that's here in the text. I think that when it says all nations, I think this is the end of the age, all nations are gathering before the Lord. I think that, that to, to, to take a, a dispensational view of this passage, say, well, this is the, all the nations that in the seven-year tribulation, how they treated the Jews, is to take your, your, your paradigm or your dispensational view and lay it on the text and say, okay, this must be where this happened. Instead of saying, okay, what does this text mean? I think the only legitimate understanding for all the nations in verse 32 is all the nations, which includes all the nations, all the Jews, all the Gentiles. And I think that's important to establish at the outset because this is, I don't think this is something pre-final judgment. I think this is the end, the end of the age, the coming of the Son of Man, and this is the final judgment. And the point is that all nations will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No one, no one is exempt. This is all nations, the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the nations will give an account to King Jesus and will be judged by the king, which also this passage here prepares the way for chapter 28 when Jesus gives what's known as the Great Commission. Do you remember what he says in the Great Commission? He says, go therefore where? All the nations. And so all the nations will stand before Christ, and so Jesus commissions his disciples, take this gospel to all the nations. And so I think all the nations means all the nations. We'll see this worked out as we work through. But the other major decision 
to establish is the identity of the least of these my brothers, or the least of these. He mentions this group of people in verse 40, and then again in verse 45. And so the identity of the least of these my brothers, and again, there's a, there's a variety of options here. People have different interpretations. So some people say, well, this just means all, without exclusion, all needy people. So the least of humanity, the homeless, the downcast, the, the destitute, and so some people say that, that the least of these refers to, to anyone who's in need. Some people say that the least of these my brothers can refer to all needy Christians. So the least of these my brothers, the way that Jesus is referring to the poor and helpless Christians. And then some would say it refers just to disciples. And so how people treat the disciples and, and then the missionaries, those who come after the disciples. And the reason it's important to recognize who the identity of the least of these my brothers is, is because the verdict that's issued, the grounds for this great separation is based on how you relate to this group. So it's important we understand, well, who is this group? Now, I think it's clear it's not all, all people without exception. Right? Some people, what, what that leads to, right, that misunderstanding would lead to what, what, what is known. It's not as popular now. It's still around. But what was the, the social gospel of, of earlier this last century? Where people say, well, the, the, the gospel is the gospel of, of good works and mercy and compassion. And so they will read this text and say, hey, if we want to be accepted by the king, we better show compassion to, to, the, to the poor and the helpless. I don't think that's the point. The Bible does talk about care for the poor and the needy. So that certainly is present in the Bible, but that's just not here. This passage is not addressing how Christians relate to just the poor in general. There are other passages, but that's not here. And so I, I, I'm going to teach that this group of people is the least among the Christians. So when Jesus refers to the least of these, his brothers, he's talking about those who are part of his family. In fact, earlier in the gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, do you remember there's this scene where he's, he's talking and there's a crowd and then people say, hey, your family wants to see you. And he says, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He says, look, these people that are listening to me and obeying my father, they are my mother and brothers. Or in Matthew 7, earlier than that, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my father. So Jesus, throughout the gospel, identifies himself, his followers are his, his family. And so when he says, the least of these are my brothers, he's talking about those who have entered the kingdom, those who are following him. So when Jesus says, that, that the least of these, his brothers, the identity of these must be Christians, those who have followed him. And within the Christians, there's a, a focus specifically on the most despised, most distressed, most put upon in greatest difficulty in the world. I think that's why he says, the hungry, the thirsty, the, the sick, the imprisoned. Okay, so that's the identity of the least of these, my brothers, is the Christians who are in dire straits, those who are suffering and, and experiencing hardship in the world. Okay, so, so there's kind of the two questions that, that at the outset, I just want to clear the, clear the table and say, here's, here's how these two decisions have come to these two. So all nations means all nations, and the least of these, my brothers, is the destitute Christian. So let's now look here at verses 31 through 33, the great separation. So look there at verse 31, you can follow along. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him you get you get the scene the picture before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left 
And so this is the second coming. The language here in verse 31 uh, points to this, this imagery that, that has accompanied the second coming, the end of the age. This is the Lord in all his glory with the angels. Back in Matthew chapter 16, the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father. And he's going to repay each one according to what he's done. That's what's happening here. Matthew chapter 21, there's a sign in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes are going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. He's going to send out his angels. So this, all this imagery is of the second coming. This is when Jesus Christ will return as supreme judge, as sovereign king, to judge all the world. This is, this is also being described, I think Matthew is intentionally using language that's a fulfillment of Daniel's vision of Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel says, I saw in the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he comes to the ancient of days and, and he was presented before him and the ancient of days gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve this son of man. And his dominion, Daniel says, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. And so that is the scene being painted here at the end of the age when Christ returns to judge the world. And Jesus is telling his disciples about this second coming, the end of the age. This, this culmination of this Olivet Discourse is, hey, it's going to happen. I'm going to return and there's going to be a final judgment. And in this final judgment, there's going to be all the nations, which implies all the peoples in all the nations. You don't have a nation without people. So all the nations is, is, implies all the people will be gathered together. And this one on the throne, the Son of Man, will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And so the emphasis here is this separation it's similar to the separation that Jesus talked about earlier. The wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the chaff, are separated. Or he even told earlier in Matthew, that there's the, the good fish from the bad. There's this separation, this end-time judgments. The, pic, the picture is that of separation. And his point is to highlight that separation. That will occur, a final separation, at his return, his second coming. It's interesting, this, this separation, he compares it to a shepherd who separates sheep from goats. And if you read commentators, commentaries, no one really knows what that means. I mean, people, the most common is that people say the separation would occur. Shepherds in first century Palestine would separate the sheep from the goats because the sheep could stay out in the open all night and they wouldn't get cold. But the goats, they got cold. You know, like some of you now, you're really cold because it's that time of the year. And you need blankets everywhere you go. Well, the goats were a Apparently, they were put inside in shelter to stay warm at the night where the sheeps weren't. Maybe that's what the separation is. Some people say, well, you had to separate them because the, the goats had to be milked and the sheep obviously didn't. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. No one really knows. That's not the point. The point is there will be a separation between the two types of people. And he wants his disciples to know that when he returns, there are going to be two groups. That's it. No third group, no middle way. There are two groups. There are sheep and there are goats, which leads to our second point as he addresses this first group, the sheep, and we see the reward of the sheep. Look there, verse 34 through 40, the second point. Verse 34, Jesus continues, then the king will say to those on his right, okay, so he, the separation has occurred and here's what he says to those on the right, come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice the switch there. The Son of Man is now the King. Right? So the King says to his sheep, to his people, come, blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. It's been prepared just for you. It's been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. So come. This is the reward of the sheep, the inheritance of the saints. The, the promise for those who have entered the kingdom through the king. The king is saying, come on, you're mine. Come into my kingdom, my presence, forever. And so he says to those on his right, to the sheep, he grants entrance into eternal life. But notice the rationale behind this entrance into eternal life. This is where things tend to get a little uncomfortable, especially for us Protestants. Look at verse 35. He says, come, enter, Verse 35, four, right? That's, 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 that's a grammatical, a ground for, he gives six different situations. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. In all these six different situations, he says, you on the right, you who are coming into my kingdom, come, welcome, enter eternal life, for when I was in these states, you ministered to me. So I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you visited me. And so as the king, as he's pronouncing this judgment, he seems to base entrance into eternal life on these six showings of compassion and kindness. And the reason this would make us feel uncomfortable is that we don't wanna misrepresent the good news of the gospel, right? We wanna be clear and say, no, 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 you aren't, you aren't gaining access into the kingdom because you show compassion, so we get uncomfortable. Well, how do we deal with this? We, we believe, rightly so, might I add, that, that the gospel is a message of good news to those who believe. You're saved by faith alone. You're justified by faith alone, not by works that no one may boast. And so do not look at this and say, well, if you show compassion, you'll be welcome. That's not the point. The gospel is not a gospel of good works. Because a righteousness has been revealed that is apart from works. For by works, no one will be saved. So the true gospel, Christianity, is a gospel of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. And so so hear me say, if you want to enter into eternal life, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The king, your relationship with the king is the means by which you enter the kingdom. We'll say more about that at the end. But, But as we read this, we know what he doesn't mean. Because we know the gospel, we know the gospel is not a gospel of good works. So we know what it doesn't mean. We have to work a little harder to understand, well, what does he mean? So, so look back at verse 37. Notice he, he says, for, welcome into the kingdom, for when all, all these six circumstances you ministered to me, notice how the righteous respond to the king. He commends him for meeting his needs. Then verse 37, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger? When, when? They, they respond by what? They're surprised. When? We don't remember that. They're surprised that the king tells them that they did these things for them. In their show of compassion, they don't say, no, we never did that. They say, well, when? When were you there and we were meeting your needs? Right? They, did the, they, they carried out these, these displays of compassion to the least of the king's brother, knowing not that they were showing compassion for the king. Or I'll say, they said, oh, I remember. 
They, they had no idea. They were showing compassion for the least of the king's brothers without thinking, well, this is for the king, so I'm going to do it. They're just, they, were, they were doing it. That's what they did. Which is why verse 40, the king answers them saying, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is teaching, I mean, this, this is the connection here, that to care for the least of these, his brothers, is to care for those who, who are the least uh, among the Christians, and to care for those, the destitute, is to care for him. That's the connection. There's a connection between how you treat God's people and how you treat God himself. A really great example of this is Acts chapter 9. Do you remember the apostles, Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul? And in Acts chapter 9, he's on the road and the Lord blinds him and knocks him off his horse. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus had, had died and had risen and ascended into heaven. But, but because of the connection between Jesus and his people, he can say, Saul, you're persecuting me because you're persecuting my people. And so that's the case here. To show compassion to one of the king's people, Jesus is, is implying is to show compassion to him. Thus, in verses 34 through 40, the sheep care for the people of God, not because they know that in so doing they'll obtain the welcome of the king, but by so doing, they show who they are. Their love for the least of these is the fruit of their relationship with the king, which is the root. Do you see how that, that relationship is important? Their relationship with the king causes them to just show love to the king's people. Their surprise must not be overlooked. I mean, if Jesus were just laying out a standard that one must achieve in order to, to accomplish or receive eternal life, if he was saying, hey, I want you to know, here's all you gotta do to be righteous and to be welcomed in the kingdom, then the response of the sheep uh, of being welcomed to eternal life wouldn't have been surprise. It would have been confirmation. They wouldn't say, well, when did we see you, Lord? They'd have said, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, we knew that. Yeah, we, we showed compassion then and we did this and this. But their surprise shows they didn't think of their works as meritorious effects to gain salvation. They wouldn't be surprised if they were doing it to gain salvation. They were just loving the people that they knew they were called to love. But notice they weren't the only ones surprised at the king's response. Look at the, the final point there, point three, the punishment of the goats there in verses 41 through 46. Now we can move quickly through this because these verses are the exact opposite of, of the verses there in, in the, the, the reward of the sheep. So verse 41 here with the goats, he'll say to those on his left, not welcome, but he says, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and the angels. So as opposed to the, the inheritance of the righteous, as opposed to the, the heavenly dwelling, life in the kingdom offer the sheep on the right, here the goats on the left are cursed and commanded, depart. Depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the sheep are welcomed and enter into eternal life. The goats enter into eternal punishment. These are the two groups. This is the separation. This is the eternal dwelling place for these two groups. And as was the case with the sheep, so too with the goats, the king gives the reason or the apparent ground for his verdict. Verse 42 for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Same six scenarios laid out, only with the goats, they neglected to show compassion to the least of the brothers. 
So the king says, unlike with the sheep where you met my needs, you ministered to me. In all these cases, you did nothing. You refused to care for me. They're commanded to depart. They are unwilling to help in any way. The sheep show compassion and the goats refuse. That's dif- different. And that is the fruit. And so by failing to love the king's people, the goats show they don't have a relationship with the king. And notice, after being told to depart, the goats respond in surprise also, just like the sheep. They're surprised to hear the verdict. When? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? When? Notice they don't say, no, 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 that, that's not true. They're not surprised at where they're going. They're surprised that, wait, wait a minute, we, we did that, didn't we? When did we fail to show compassion? The goats are surprised because they can't remember a time that they refused service to the king. Certainly in their minds, if they saw the king in need, they would have done something. They would never have refused to help the king. And he said, likewise, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so here we see this this great separation is completed. Eternal life being the reward of the sheep, life forever in the presence of the king, the good shepherd with his people, and eternal punishment being the judgment upon the goats, life forever apart from the presence of the king in hell. As we we conclude, as as we've worked through these verses, we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the point of this passage? Why would Jesus teach these things at the end of his Olivet Discourse? I mean, in this Olivet Discourse, he's gone from birth pains to destruction of the temple to the necessity of waiting between the times, eager for the return of Christ, and now he brings the end of the age to a climax with the judgment of all the nations who will stand before the king and will give an account, specifically how they treated the king's people. And the final judgment, based on, depending on, how, how one related to the king's people will lead to eternal life or eternal judgment. So why would Jesus end the Olivet Discourse this way? Why a picture of judgment before he's just about to go to the cross? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, consider the life and ministry of Jesus. He came, right? We've been with him for almost two years working through his ministry. He came to bring or establish the kingdom of God on earth. That was his purpose. The kingdom is at hand. We saw all the way back in the beginning. That was his purpose. And the most significant thing that he was going to do for his people in order to gain them interest into the kingdom was going to be to go to the cross and die for for their sins. And people enter the kingdom through faith in the king. They put their faith in the king and they're united to him. Entrance into the kingdom is through the son, right? That's clear throughout Matthew's gospel. If you've been with us, you've seen that throughout the gospel of Matthew, throughout the entire New Testament, Which is why here at the final judgment scene, it is not the case that he's given a test for entry into the kingdom. He's not telling his disciples and others, just show a little bit of compassion. Just carry out a few generous acts and you're going to get eternal life. That's not what he's saying. That goes against the whole purpose of his life. If that's all it took, he would not go to the cross. That isn't the case. It, It can't be. His point is simply, disciples, how you treat Others in the kingdom, how you treat the king's people is a relationship, as a reflection of your relationship to me, the king. How you treat the least of these, my brothers, is a reflection of your relationship with me. 
I mean, consider again the surprise of both the sheep and the goats. They didn't know they were showing compassion. They didn't know they were neglecting to show compassion to the king. I mean, if you think for a second about if they would have known it was the king they were showing compassion to, or if it was the king that they were neglecting to show compassion to, do you think in the case of the sheep, anything would have been different if they knew it was the king? Of course not. They would have done the same thing. They'd have showed compassion. If they did it for the least of the king's people, of course they'd do it for the king. Well, what about for the goats? Would they have acted differently if they knew it was the king? Well, of course they would have. Which is the point. Because if they knew it was the king, they would have acted differently, which, which proves themselves to be hypocrites. And I think this test, the reason he tells us at the end of chapter 23, he's been opposed and and attacked by these hypocrites, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and now he gives this test to say the hypocrite will not stand in the judgment. This final test eliminates the possibility of hypocrisy because the king knows who you are and others are going to know who you are too by the way you treat his people. So that when when the disciples see their king hanging on the cross, they're going to know that is not of the Lord, that's not how you treat the Messiah. The way you treat the king and his people declares to the world who you are. So kingdom citizens relate to other kingdom citizens, even the least of these, in a way that honors the king. The goat wants to say, well, I love the king, but I don't love his people. In the same way that the goat would want to say back on the Sermon on the Mount, I I never committed murder. Although I hate my brother in my heart, I've never committed murder. Or I've never committed adultery, though lust consumes my heart, I've never committed adultery. Right? That's, that's what the goat, the goat wants to be a hypocrite. I can love the king without caring about the king's people. And this final judgment scene is a reckoning saying all hypocrisy will be unmasked. The religious Pharisee will not stand in the judgment. It will be, he or she will be exposed. You can say you love Jesus all you want. You can say you follow him all you want. You can talk all the talk you want. But at the end of the day, the most basic test of that claim, of that talk, is your love for his people. I think that's the main application of this passage for us. Your love for Christ is seen or evidenced or reflected by your love for Christ's people. You love Christ by loving his people. And this truth is one of the most basic and simple realities of what it means to be a born-again Christian. It is not unclear throughout the entire Old Testament. I mean, just listen to a few of these verses. Actually, they're all from from the letter of 1 John. But just listen to, to these. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This is 1 John 3.10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here's my paraphrase. By this, it's evident who are the sheep and who are the goats. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not a sheep, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Or a few verses later, 1 John 3.14. We know, John writes, that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Paraphrase, we know that we are sheep because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love is a goat. That's my translation. That's not in the Bible. I'm just trying to convey the point because the point is clear. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, John says he's a liar. I say he's a goat. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a goat. The the basic, simple point, you cannot have a right relationship with Christ 
You cannot be in the kingdom. You cannot be born again. You cannot be a member in the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into eternal life if you have not loved the people of God. It's that simple. And, and so some of us just need to be reminded of this simple truth. And this passage would simply have us to consider our own lives, to evaluate the ways in which we are actively loving God's people. And so in what ways are you actively showing love to God's people? Maybe you've grown cold in your love for God's people. Maybe your fervor or love for the church has waned or grown cold. And if that's the case, I'm glad that you're here because this text would simply urge you, would provoke you to love and good deeds. This text ought to provoke us to a renewed commitment to God's people, not because we want to escape judgment, but because, but because we want love for Christ to grow. We want our relationship to Christ to be reflected in the way we love his people. And so ways to love God's people, I mean, meet practical needs. Is anyone here, are any of the members of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church hungry or thirsty? Maybe. We're all pretty well taken care of. We're pretty wealthy here. Is anyone sick? Is anyone among us lonely? Is anyone struggling with life circumstances? Is, is anyone suffering? Is anyone doubting? Do you know? If not, maybe a more basic question for you is simply, do you know God's people who are part of the family here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church? We show love to God's people by knowing God's people. We show love to God's people by gathering together with God's people. We, we love God's people by praying for God's people, by meeting the needs of God's people. And those are three really simple things you can do to love God's people. It's interesting, people will visit and they, they'll be gone for a while and then they'll meet me again and they'll, they'll feel bad. Like, well, I've been meaning to go. I mean, I say in all seriousness, well, we've been there. We're not going anywhere. I mean, our schedule is not hard to keep. Maybe, maybe fall festival stuff, maybe Bible studies, but, but 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings, we're here. Like, we're not hard to find. And, and I don't say that to, to guilt anyone or shame, but if you want to gather with God's people, we're not hard to find. And if, if we're not God's people that you want to be part of and love and know, well, there are other places, outposts of God's people here in Hampton. And so practically, we love God's people by, by gathering with them, by knowing them, by praying for them. And so that's one of the reasons here at our church, we, we take membership seriously. That's why we urge faithful attendance, not because we want the place to be filled. I, I really couldn't care less how many people are here. We want to take membership seriously because we want God's people actively knowing and loving God's people. Because when you're part of a body, you get to love others, but guess what else happens? Others get to love you. And sometimes you really need to be loved. Where are you gonna go if you don't know anyone? It's so tragic when people say, well, yeah, I, I was suffering really bad and I'm going through a really hard time. That's why I'm not at church. And I'm gonna say, the reason for the church is for you to be there when you are struggling and suffering. If you can't trust God's people to love you, who can you trust? So we love God's people. That is a mark. That is how we 
display, evidence, reflect our relationship with Christ by loving the people of Christ. And that's why we're going to have a fellowship lunch after church so that people just get together and talk and get to know one another. And so if, if you are a follower of Christ, this text would just encourage you to grow in your love for his people. And we all can grow in that, myself included. And so consider ways that you can actively love God's people. Maybe it's just introducing yourself to someone that you should have introduced yourself to a long time ago. But the other application from this text is not for those of us who, who love Christ and, and want to display a relationship with him in our care for others, but it's for those who do not know Christ. And so if you're here and you've not put your faith in Christ, if you haven't been reconciled to God through the Son, the last thing I want you to do is to walk out of here thinking, I just gotta show a little compassion. It's gotta be kind. I don't want you leaving here stapling apples on an oak tree, right? Because you staple all the apples you want, you're not gonna change the nature of the tree. If that's you here this morning, you must be born again. You must be made something new that you are not currently. And it's not anything you do other than looking to Christ in faith. We love others because God has loved us. You should know that about Christians. We don't love you because we're good people. We love you because God has shown his love for us. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John 3.16, God shows his love for us, or God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A person cannot be a follower of Jesus and be void of compassion, which is at the heart of the gospel. We are people who love others because God has loved us. The kingdom is a kingdom of love from first to last, a kingdom that is displayed in love for one another, but it's established by God's love for us. Christ has shown his love for us, his enemies, by laying down his life for us. And so if you're not, if you're not a Christian, we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper. This, this supper is not for you. you know, we don't want you just eating bread and drinking juice. We want you putting your faith in the true Christ, the one who laid down his life and shed his blood so that sinners like you and like me could be reconciled. And so your application from this text is that you will be judged by the king of kings one day and your only hope is not what you've done but your relationship to the king which comes through faith in him. And so I would urge you, I would call you, Will, Robert, talk to us, talk to someone in the pew beside you. We want you to know how to enter in to eternal life and not be scared of the judgment that is coming that is only through the king. Let me pray for us.